A treaty is an august instrument. Different forms of treaties have existed since antiquity, as nation-states and other polities before them sought to employ international agreements to coordinate their relations. But what is a treaty exactly? Why and how do states today make them? Are there alternative agreement forms that perform similar functions? And how can states interpret, apply, avoid, or exit their treaty commitments? My name is Duncan Hollis, and I'm the Laura H. Carnell Professor of Law at Temple University in Philadelphia. And this mini-series of lectures seeks to answer these questions and more. I've designed these five lectures to approach our subject, treaties, on no less than three fronts, functions, doctrine, and effectiveness. First and most generally, I'll offer a functional frame, a way to assess what purposes treaties serve in both international law and international relations, to explore the reasons states make treaties and other forms of international agreement, alongside the roles treaties play as a source of international law and international obligation. Second, I'll cover the relevant doctrine, that is, the law of treaties itself. I'll use the treaty's life cycle as an outline for doing so, exploring the relevant legal rules regarding treaty formation, treaty interpretation, treaty application, and exit. Along the way, we'll discuss the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, also known as the VCLT. And we'll also talk about its 1986 cousin. These treaties provide many, but as we'll see, not all of the relevant rules and standards. Third, I'll occasionally step back from describing the law and ask about its efficacy. How well do treaties function, and how well does the law serve them in doing so? What do current circumstances suggest about a need for further clarifications, or even the law's progressive development? So overall, my hope is to offer you what might be called an advanced introduction to treaty law and practice. As such, my aim is not to offer a full course on the topic. The present format doesn't allow a comprehensive or complete survey or overview. Um, we're not going to cover every relevant doctrinal dispute or conceptual issue. My goals are more modest. In addressing some of the most prominent and significant aspects of treaty law and practice, I hope to equip you with a framework for understanding this instrument. It's my hope, then, that you can use the detailed outline of functions, doctrine, and effectiveness that we'll cover here to pursue further inquiries and research on your own. To that end, I should note that several of the topics I discuss have already received deeper treatments uh, as part of the UN's Audiovisual Library on International Law. You might, for example, go and explore the prior treatments on the Law of Reservations, for example. I commend these uh, other lectures to you as additional resources for enhancing your understanding of an instrument that has become, in some ways, the currency of international law. In terms of my coverage, the first lecture situates the treaty in international relations and international law, examining it in terms of history, functions, and sources. I'll ask, where does the treaty commitment come from historically? How does it function to order interstate relations, whether as a restraint or an enabling device? We'll also examine whether and when treaties operate as a source of international law, and when they are more simply just lawful obligations of states' parties. My second lecture will address the concept of the treaty in international law, trying to define it in both in terms of its constitutive elements, but also in comparison to other forms of commitment and international agreements. This will provide us a basis for exploring how to differentiate these categories, not just formally, but in practice and functionally as well. 
International lawyers today especially need to be cognizant of the differences between treaties and political commitments, to use them in different contexts, and in assessing the legal effects, if any, that follow from concluding one type of agreement or another. My third lecture takes us up to the topic of treaty formation, right? beginning with the question of who has the capacity to make treaties in the first place. We'll explore the relevant role of states in this process, but also international organizations and non-governmental organizations, each of which have devised particularly specific ways of interacting with the treaty formation process. We'll also think about the issues that may arise uh, in designing a treaty negotiation. What are the things that we have to think about in advance? The way we will look at then is what the VCLT says about treaty um, consent and formation, uh, including entry into force, as well as the concept of applying a treaty provisionally. Like much of the law of treaties, these rules on consent, entry into force, and provisional application operate in some ways by default, and they can usually be altered at the discretion and with the consent of the treaty parties. Like, um, that's it. I should say that the law of treaties does impose certain limitations. And so my fourth lecture will take up how the law of treaties does so, shaping treaty commitments through rules on validity, uh, including those on coercion and use cogens, um, the so-called peremptory norms of international law. We'll also consider when and how the law of treaties affords individual states more unilateral ways to limit their treaty commitments through a discussion of the relevant laws on reservations, understandings, and declarations. Kind of colloquially, we call these RUDs. My fifth and final lecture will turn to questions around a treaty's operation, with particular attention to questions of interpretation, domestic application, amendment, and exit. Each of those topics, frankly, could be the subject of its own mini-series, so our treatments will be necessarily truncated. Still, we'll explore the basic rules for interpreting treaties, the ways different legal systems approach authorizing treaty making, and the legal status they may accord a treaty within their internal legal order. And we'll explore the ways parties can adjust their treaty commitments through standard amendment processes, as well as newer, more simplified forms. And finally, we'll talk about the ways treaties end or exit occurs. We'll look at whether this is through the election of the parties by uh, exit under the terms of the treaty's uh, agreement or by agreement of the parties or via the nature of the treaty itself, as well as the various legal doctrines like breach, impossibility, and so-called rebus sextantibus, or the fundamental change of circumstances, which uh, will operate to afford parties, in certain rare cases, the ability to exit their treaty commitments. I'll conclude this series by asking about the current state of play for treaties in the international legal order today, highlighting signs that treaties may be waning in some senses, alongside ways that their prospects for continued use and evolution in years to come remain quite strong. That's a lot to cover. So let's get started. So how should we begin? We could, I suppose, start with history and look for earlier, the earliest examples of the treaty forms, such as the surviving text of a treaty between Egypt and the Hittite Empire, concluded 1,259 years before the Common Era. Doing so has some clear advantages. It allows us to find contributions to treaty law and practice across the globe in lieu of the European sources that usually dominate discussions of modern international law. We could benefit from thinking about the role of alad, or the commitment in Northern African societies and cultures, or the sworn covenants advocated by Sun Tzu in China. At the same time, however, 
many historical treaties had features that are much less prominent in modern practice, most notably their reliance on the divine to establish the credibility of the promises made. And I should emphasize here that the divine law references still make appearances today, often in the context of peace treaties. But the shift is in other ways quite profound. And I think it's perhaps easiest to engage with the fact that early treaties involved not one, but two sets of promises. There was a horizontal promise between the actual contracting treaty parties, uh, whether it was to do X or not do Y, um, but there was this promise that they would exchange horizontally. At the same time, there was a separate vertical promise that each party made to observe these first set of promises uh, with respect to their respective religious order or deity. The idea being that even if parties did not or would not trust the promise they would receive from the other uh, polity, um, they would trust that promise if it was backed up by a sworn covenant uh, where there'd be some greater sense of compliance with that covenant, that vertical promise I describe. Right? So each side might not be trusted to perform their promises inter se at the horizontal level, but they could be trusted to honor their promises within the divine law setting that they were often made. Now, not every culture followed such traditions. The Roman Empire, for example, preferred to guarantee promises through the use of human hostages, but enough did that the divine origins of treaty practice bear noting. And then the system began to secularize loosely beginning in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia. Now again, in flagging this shift, I do so quite cognizant that international law's European origins have had lasting and not always benign impacts on our current international legal order. Nonetheless, I submit it is difficult to understand the treaty concept today without appreciating the shift that came when the credibility of treaty promises ceased to depend on any sort of divine oaths or covenants uh, or other external validators. So why do treaties bind states to the commitments they contain today? Is the answer custom? Certainly 5,000 years of practice that treaties are generally binding goes fairly far, but there are uh, quite a number of vagaries in that practice, and it begs the question of what the basis for custom being binding is. So I actually think a better answer lies in the Latin phrase, pacta sunt servanda. It is the fundamental principle today according to which states are obligated to comply with their treaty commitments in good faith. Literally, treaties ought to be obeyed. Pacta sunt servanda operates to give treaties their binding force. As Article 26 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties provides, quote, every treaty in force is binding upon the parties to it and must be performed by them in good faith. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't step back and ask, what makes states bound to this principle? What makes pacta sunt servanda binding? Might it not be, as professors Thomas Frank, Professor Al Rubin separately suggested, not something, uh, it's not something that states have agreed to, but rather a natural law rule. A rule that does not depend on the positive consent of states, but exists independent of their will as a foundational, universal, an unchanging principle for organizing international relations. Indeed, it's important to understand that whatever else the VCLT does, it could not make Pacta Sunt Servanda a binding rule, given the tautology inherent in having states consent to consent being binding. Consent can't make consent binding without engaging in some fairly faulty 
circular logic. As such, Pacta Sunt Servanda, the core principle for a positivist ordering of the international system, must rest on a natural law principle that exists independent of the will of states to remain theoretically sound. Now, understanding the historical origins of the basis of obligation in treaties does not, however, tell us much about why states use treaties. To do so, we need to bring in another core concept of the current world order, namely sovereignty. The idea of sovereignty was originally introduced by the philosophers Jean Baudin and Thomas Hobbes as an attempt to explain the internal ordering of a state. They reasoned that there must, uh, in the end, be some single entity, the sovereign, possessing supreme legislative authority to dictate what the law was within uh, a legal system, supported by the threat of sanctions. Philosophers like John Austin took the view that this concept um, could describe not only relations within a state, but also the state's relations with others, uh, and established this idea of sovereignty uh, as equating to the independence of states vis-a-vis -vis all other states. And thus was born this notion of nation-states as sovereign actors within their own territory and subject to no other external authority. So as a concept, therefore, sovereignty provides a foundation for a positivist, consensualist system of international law. As the Permanent Court of International Justice explained in their famous Lotus opinion, sovereignty suggests that states relate to one another free of limitations except as they so agree. And although we'll unpack the definition of treaties more precisely in my second lecture, I assume I'm not spoiling anything uh, by indicating that in the modern sovereignty-based system of international relations, treaties are the vehicle by which states limit their sovereignty. Which brings us to my first hypothetical. Some of you may recall from your history lessons France's son king, Louis XIV, and his famous self-identification as the embodiment of the nation-state. L'état c'est moi, he said. I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you are his modern-day equivalent. Pretend, if you will, that you have your own island or mountain kingdom, uh, if you prefer, uh, one where you are recognized as sovereign both internally and externally. In such a situation, why would you ever agree to give up any of this sovereignty to accept treaty commitments as a matter of law? Pause the video if you need to, to list your reasons, come back when you're ready, and I'll offer some answers of my own. So why would an absolute sovereign ever consent to give up some aspect of its discretion uh, and authority to operate as they would otherwise see fit? I'll offer six rationales. Reciprocity, security, transboundary activities, global commons, global problems, and humanitarian values. Reciprocity is a prominent justification, right? A state will agree to certain future behavior vis-a-vis -vis a treaty partner in order to engender similar behavior from the partner in return. Now note here that that behavior may be negative in character, not doing something so that someone else will not do something, uh, but it may be more positive, engaging in something that's deemed a required act so that others will similarly engage in such positive uh, behavior. So we can kind of see it as a zone of reciprocal uh, permitted or required behaviors. And so it's really important, I think, to see at the outset that treaties not always act as restraints. They can just as easily constitute agreements that require behavior or enable behavior. That is, giving states permission to do things. 
beyond reciprocity, security is another rationale. For all its autonomy, a state's limited resources may leave it vulnerable to other states, whether militarily, politically, economically. In such cases, it may be quite rational for a state committing to some sort of alliance to secure its defense or its economy, etc., even if it does mean giving up some autonomy in the process. Indeed, without such agreements, the sovereign might face more existential threats to its very existence. Then there are transboundary activities, right? The world is an increasingly interdependent place. It's hard to maintain complete control as a sovereign when all or part of the conduct you care about, care about takes place outside your territory. The need to regulate the movement of the mail, airplanes, data, even ideas like intellectual property may incentivize states to conclude treaties. Of course, there are also global problems that require global solutions. Certain issues are recognized as not being capable of solution by any sovereign state acting individually. For example, even if one state decided to throw all of its resources uh, to counter global terrorism or climate change, its efforts would still come up short given the global nature of these threats. So as a result, global problems often generate treaty solutions, such as the Persistent Organic Pollutants Convention, where states agreed to discontinue the production and consumption of certain hazardous chemicals that bioaccumulated across species and spread thousands of miles from their original source. Alongside global problems, there are global commons to consider. Right? There are areas over which states exercise no sovereignty, most prominently the high seas, but also you could consider outer space as another example. Treaties allow states to agree to the rules of the road in these common spaces. Finally, you might ask what motivates states to agree to protect, respect, and ensure human rights? Why would a state agree to regulate how it treats its own people who would otherwise be subject to its jurisdiction and control? I think states, of course, may rationalize such commitments uh, in terms of some of the other rationales I've already mentioned. Right? It may be a function of reciprocity or security for the peaceful coexistence of states. But there may be more normative rationales at work. Certainly drawing on the history and the horrors of the Second World War, states have learned that internal constitutional rights alone may falter before ideological movements and the evolution of what it means to be a state. And so there may need to be external checks on how states treat their own. And at the same time, we've seen states increasingly socialized to the idea that to be a state today, to be a responsible state today, means identifying with and endorsing and protecting certain humanitarian values. Of course, the state's sovereignty and the rationales it produces for treaties that I'm discussing here, right, are ideal types. There really has never been a state that is absolutely sovereign vis-a-vis -vis other states, uh, especially in today's globalized world. The reality is the current international legal order constantly reflects a tension between the theoretical autonomy of state actors and the reality of their increasing interdependence. And in many ways, such interdependence has served to broaden and deepen the need for treaties and other forms of agreement that can both limit sovereigns, but also facilitate their behavior and with it in some ways strengthen their stability, both internally and externally. So having thought about treaties' history and their functions, I'd like to turn now to the role of treaties in international law itself. 
and the question of the extent to which treaties operate as a source of that law. Those of you familiar with Ian Brierley's um, uh, seminal treatise, Principles of Public International Law, may recall he begins with a useful explanation of how every legal system has sources of law that can be broken into three categories. Formal sources of law, material sources of law, and incidences of obligation. Formal sources of law are those that delineate the procedures and methods for creating rules of general application. These will be familiar to any student of constitutional law. Chile's constitution, for example, is a formal source of law. It delineates the procedures for Chile's legislature to enact laws and the status they will have once enacted. Of course, formal sources may not be limited to constitutions. States like Germany have a basic law that does so, while other formal sources may have more customary rather than constitutional origins. But wherever they are found, a legal system's formal sources provide a blueprint for the next type of source, the material sources of law. These are the existence of rules which, if proved, have the status of legally binding rules of general application. Consider, for example, Australia's constitution. It tells us that we can look for material sources of law in Australia in the rights and protections the constitution itself affords, uh, commonwealth legislation, decisions of the Australian High Court and the federal courts of Australia, the state constitutions, that is the subnational territorial units within Australia, their legislation and decisions of their courts as well. So as such, the Australian legal system gives us fairly clear markers for both a formal source of law and an array of material sources of law, leaving only that third category, incidences of obligation. Now, in contrast to material sources, incidences of obligation aren't rules of general application, but rules of law operating between specific entities. Right? They're rules of specific application. The most prominent example of an incident of obligation is a contract. A contract is legally binding or lawful, but only on the parties to it, and we tend not to refer to it as law at all. Another example might be licenses that are granted by a government to certain actors to engage in certain businesses or activities. A license isn't law so much as a lawful grant of authority. Taken together, though, it's easy to see how for most legal systems, we can sketch out the formal and material sources of law alongside any incidences of obligation. Doing so allows us to assess different consequences of identifying different sources' scope and their purposes, whether as laws of general or specific obligation. They also allow us to differentiate what the philosopher H.L.A. Hart called the secondary rules, the rules on rules, whose pedigree informs the origin and operation of so-called primary rules that bind the law's subjects. As is well known, however, and in contrast to most domestic legal orders, the international legal order is differently advanced. As such, its distinctions between formal sources, material sources, and incidences of obligation are murkier. There really is nothing that binds states, international organizations, and individuals under international law in the same way as uh, an Aust uh, Australian Parliamentary Act operates as the supreme law of the land. That said, the international legal system does have at least one overarching recognized formal source. I think everyone accepts as an operating principle the idea that the general consent of states creates rules of general application. 
of course. Some of you may be recalling prior international law studies and say, wait, that's a positivist view, and most international lawyers today are not positivists. What about those who see the international legal order differently, uh, whether as naturalists or proponents of some transnational legal process school? Do adherence to these theories really accept international law only comes from state consent? Is that all there is? It's a big question, deserves its own mini-series. For now, I'll say that there remains much debate over whether there are other formal sources of international law, uh, like unilateral declarations or decisions of international organizations. Nevertheless, there does seem to be agreement that state consent is the predominant method for creating rules of general application, regardless of whether it is the only formal source of international law or a formal source of international law. Even the preeminent scholarly critic Marty Koskinyemi recognized the role of sources and consent as part of the international legal order, even if only a part. See, for example, his pay-in to Utopia. The good news is there's much more clarity when it comes to material sources of international law emerging from the general consent of states. Indeed, there's near uniformity that any list of international law's material sources begins with Article 38.1 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice. You'll recall it lists four sources. Treaties, first. That is, international conventions, whether general or particular, establishing rules expressly recognized by contesting states. Then there's international custom, as evidence of a general practice accepted as law. And then third, general principles of law recognized by nations. And then both judicial decisions and the academic writing, or quote, the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists, are listed as subsidiary means for determining the rules of law. Right away, the preeminent top-line placement of treaties begs the question. Is this a listing of convenience, in that treaties are most likely to be raised or treated as dispositive in litigation before the world court? Or does it signal higher aspirations, placing treaties in a hierarchically superior position over other sources of international law? And even if it's accurate to suggest that treaties are uh, uh, appropriately listed in Article 38, is it appropriate to list them as a source of international law at all? Does it make sense to refer to them as a material source when treaties, by their very nature, bind only the parties to them? In that sense, aren't they closer to contracts, making them incidences of obligation, right? Specific states getting together to agree to do something or not do something, with the treaty then being more lawful than law. The question has important implications for how we imagine the international legal order. Is it one where there are lots of treaties signaling lots of law, rules of general application? Or is it one with much less law and many, many more specific and, if you will, synalogmatic promises? Looking across the legal landscape, I'd suggest the answer is not one or the other, but perhaps both. As the French suggest, we see evidences of both trait loi and trait contract in practice. I'll give you two examples of this idea of treaties as law and treaties as contracts. First, in 2000, Germany and Ecuador concluded uh, what's called a debt for nature swap agreement, where Germany promised to reduce Ecuador's debt in exchange for Ecuador promising to protect certain domestic natural resources for environmental purposes. Consider in contrast, in 1948, states concluded the Genocide Convention defining a crime of genocide, agreeing not to commit it, 
and to pursue and prosecute those who do. In our first case, the Debt for Nature Swap Treaty, it's hard to say it's creating a rule of law. Its obligations are both highly contextual uh, and dispositive in character. The treaty requires specific performance on a specific time, time frame, um, exchanging debt for nature. But in the genocide context, the intention is to set a lasting rule of general application. The, the states' parties are not seeking to just bind themselves inter se, such as to bind all states to ban genocide. And the obligation is equally indefinite in its character. Just because a state does not commit genocide last year does not suggest that it has complied sufficiently with the, the treaty so as to release it from the ban on genocide next year. In other words, there are some treaties, albeit probably a minority, that adopt a normative frame and achieve near universal acceptance, like the Genocide Convention, that we can view them as encompassing rules of general application. They can qualify as, say, a material source of international law, separate and apart from custom. And that question of when treaties codify customary international law is one that bears further discussion, but I'll happily reserve it for a future lecture, and it's not something I'll address further in this mini-series. Beyond their place in sources, though, I'd close with a more general reminder of the incredibly practical reality of why treaties matter so much in international law today. Whether considered in terms of their quantity or their quality, treaties are undoubtedly the dominant source of international legal commitments today. Treaties have proliferated so much over the last century. Thousands upon thousands have been concluded, creating if not a network of laws properly called, then at least a deep uh, network of legal rights and obligations. And the pace of treaty making may have slowed in recent years, but there are still tens of thousands to consider as states uh, gauge their behavior today. Indeed, if you think about how many treaties are out there, the UN Treaty Office has registered more than 72,000, but everyone thinks that is only a partial sampling, given that reporting is often delayed, if not inconsistent. And qualitatively speaking, in a system that is at least partially positivist, where states consent to be bound by a rule is widely regarded as a prerequisite for applying that rule to the state, treaties remain the primary mechanism for establishing such consent. Pacta sunt servanda remains a universal condition for international law's operation, and the chances are that as few as an international lawyer today encounter any international legal problem, there will be a treaty that at least speaks to part of the problem or uh, its solution or available remedies. So, in sum, in this first lecture, we've begun modestly. I've attempted to situate the treaty concept in terms of its history, very, very briefly, in terms of the functions that justify treaty making, and in terms of how sources of international law think about the treaty, whether as a source of material uh, obligation that is generally applicable, or one that is more specific to the parties in the sense that Pactus and Savanda suggests. With this introduction in hand, I will move in my next lecture to ask what, what is a treaty exactly? and compare it to some of the alternatives that have emerged in terms of commitments and other forms of international agreement that have come, quite frankly, to compete with the treaty in recent years. So I hope you join me as we continue this mini-series on treaties and international law. Thank you.